tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Combing your hair in a thousand ways. Buffaloes die in the frozen fields. Lying straight-faced while I cry and inciting a peaceful riot. Every picture tells a story, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Good evening, everybody. This is this is Vinyl Tap, broadcasting to you from the Vinegaroon Saloon deep in the heart of North Austin. I am Tony Slagle, your host for this evening, joined as always by Doug Cooper. Hello, my people. And our very, very humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Good evening, Tapsters. So tonight we're going to be taking on the third solo LP from Rod Stewart, Every Picture Tells a Story. Recorded in just 10 days and released in, the May, in May of 1971, it's shot him to stardom in a way that I think nobody was really uh, thinking would happen, including himself. Yeah. And uh, before we get into the uh, nitty-gritty of the background and the album, I will ask the question we always ask of the person who picked this album. Doug? You there? I'm here. I'm um, just considering how lucky we, lucky we are to have this great audience. And <laughs> just wanted to say that. I'm sorry. I was a little bit distracted by my compassion for the audience. <laughs> well, t- <laughs> so... Uh, you could uh, share your compassion even more by explaining to them why you picked Every Picture Tells a Story. Well, number one, I think this is an excellent album. I think there might be some people who haven't listened to it and would enjoy it a great deal. I think it does what rock and roll really does well on a couple of tunes. Um, it tells a good story on the way to the record. And probably the most compelling reason to talk about this is we're talking about a superstar. And we just know what he was able to do in the first part of his life. If he had lived past 1978, (laughs) I I just wonder what else we would have heard. Um, I find find this fascinating because I think, and J.M., you can correct me if I'm wrong, that this is an album probably all three of us would have picked somewhere along the way to talk about. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Now, we might not necessarily all agree with everything that the other people agree with about it, but I think we all three find it a compelling album to talk about, and as Doug said, the story leading up to it is compelling as well. 
Yeah, I find the whole era surrounding Rod Stewart and the faces and, um, you know, by extension, stuff that like Ronnie Lane was doing, just a very compelling time. That time from 1970 to 1975, they were just making some great music. And uh, it's some of my favorite music that's made, and two of my favorite albums were made by Rod Stewart at this time, uh, this album, and Never a Dull Moment. I don't know about you guys, but I listen to these things a little differently than I normally do when I'm doing it for a podcast. Sure. So I pick up things I haven't heard before and I think about things and I, I don't think I'd listen to this album in a while. And it, a couple of things struck me that we can talk about along the way uh, as both good and bad um, that I hadn't really thought about before. But the weirdest thing to me is how much I love this stuff as well as how much I love the faces music and how much it is. uh I don't think it's a stretch to say uh, it's odd because of my disdain for the Rolling Stones. <laughs> uh, yeah, that I think if you could track down the exact thing that separates this from the Rolling Stones, you would be able to pinpoint what exactly it is you dislike about the Rolling Stones. Well, it may be one half of the Glimmer Twins. I'm not a, the biggest fan of. It may be of. part of the voice. So <laughs> I think you, it's exactly yeah. what it is. I'm and not the biggest Mick Jagger fan. They are bluesier than this. And they are. And there has been a few times when you've said something about not being fond of the blues. <laughs> or America, if I remember correctly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, this guy, this guy's interesting because, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's uh, kind of always on the periphery of of these various projects that sort of almost put him in in a star in a superstar position and then this thing comes out of nowhere i mean i don't know if you guys knew this or not but uh you know he went to the same school as the brothers davies ray and i did not Dave, know that huh? and was actually in a band with them at one point is that right yeah before the well, kinks we, we talked about that uh in the village green preservation the rod Stewart was in the band that there was this guy named Roderick. That uh, oh yeah. Well, he, he got kicked out because they used to practice in the drummer's garage, and the drummer's mom thought his voice was awful. <laughs> it's too raspy, and so they kicked him out of the band. That's not the last time he got excused from a project because of his voice. Which is uh, which is so ironic. Which is yeah. funny because that's one of the things we talked about the most at the end of last time we were together is how iconic this guy's voice is and how uh we all three feel that it's um one of those voices in rock and roll that stands head and shoulders above so many other voices. I think um we're going to repeat something here we did with Peter Gabriel. And that's when I talk about songwriting I cannot tell you how good of a songwriter Peter Gabriel or Rod Stewart are because their voice is so good. Yeah. It makes any any yeah. song sound fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I, I do think Rod Stewart's a good songwriter. Not not terribly prolific, but he, the songs he's written are solid. <laughs> yeah. But it, it does, it is a little bit like cheating. It's like putting bacon into food when you get a voice that good. <laughs> Well, it, it is funny that uh, that you say not very prolific, because that's, I think, one of the things that makes it 
a little difficult to to for sort of people who aren't willing to take the time to listen to his stuff to get into is his albums are extremely cover heavy. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of times they're they do he does covers of songs you're familiar with, but every now and then, as in this on this album, he does one or two that you're not familiar with, and he knocks them out of the park. Yeah, he he did that with um, what's that? Uh, Manford Man drummers, uh, glad uh, bags and hand rags, hand rags and glad, glad bags. bags. Yeah, he just yeah he uh, knocked nailed, that one out of the park. Didn't they use that for the uh, English British office? office the yeah, British office. <laughs> that um, that that is what that was on. I think his first uh, solo album. Yeah, it was it is spectacular. Yeah, he was born in uh, 1945. He with bombs going with bombs. Yeah, (laughs) the the end of uh, he was the by far the youngest of the kids in his family, Uh, and he was and he had older older siblings. Um, Despite the fact that he was born uh, during a bomb raid, one of the last bomb raids in 1945 of Britain, he uh, described his childhood as what was it something like insanely happy like he just said he does not yeah. really have any bad memories or, or uh and he anything. speaks very well of his parents particularly yeah. his dad his yeah. dad and he, he he was one of the first brits we've ever uh talked about that knows how to say the word soccer which i found really <laughs> exciting. that's because he's lived in the states since 75 yeah I'll, I'll, you would too if they tried to get 83 percent of the thing you made <laughs> thank you england um but yeah he was speaking of soccer. He was a an exceptional athlete, and there's um, it, it's, there's various stories about whether he could have gone professional or not. Um, but he did kind of work some odd jobs while he was kind of trying to decide was was he going to become a full on soccer player or was he going to uh, become a prolific musician or a, become a a musician full time. Whether or not he was going to find himself a rock and roll band. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> well, he did uh, end up digging graves for a while. So yeah, he that's was what a grave digger. If you uh, got one foot on the platform and the other on the train, yeah, you get end up uh, falling in the middle. But he was. Uh, I saw a lot of interviews with people talking about what an exceptional soccer player he was. Yeah, which was his dad's big love and. Uh, yeah, he said he didn't remember a soccer game not being on the radio when he was growing up. Yeah, and uh, he was he was pushed into playing soccer, but he was also had a very natural ability, and he was also just supposedly just a um, very charming person, even though he did not do so well in school. Which um, a lot of charming people don't do well in school because <laughs> yeah. they depend on charm. And stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a theme running through his early career is depending on his charm. Yeah, and his uh, exceptional voice. It's, I've seen interviews with him where he, he pretty much makes it clear that he knows he has a fantastic voice, and it's just a matter of time. So, uh, yeah. and everybody, almost everybody, agrees with him. Yeah, but he's a he's a even though he's born in London, his parents are uh, Scottish, and he took a lot of pride in that, and uh, that comes up frequently. Mm-hmm. In fact, enough. 
frequently enough that uh, back when I was in college, I thought he was Scottish. Yeah, so he's grave digging, uh, quits the soccer because they have to wake up early and train. And then he uh, <laughs> finds himself grave digging and his sister says, I think every grave he ever dug collapsed. And uh, uh, the, uh, he ends up going through a series of bands and uh, puts out... Uh, what was his first? He had his first single was "Little Schoolgirl." Hello, little schoolgirl. Yeah. Seems like that's everybody's first single. <laughs> got to do it while you're young or they arrest you um and he uh he starts getting the attention of everybody in this on the music scene in london and uh and then we get to what you just said uh, a yard birdless uh jeff beck picks him up yeah and puts it on uh, on an incredible album that we'll cover someday called truth else happens to be on that album uh, he has a bass player a bass but uh, yeah a bass player a bass player yeah. who's the bass player he this is a great story for our audience this is a man who overcame <laughs> being a bass player and eventually became a great guitar player he was in a band called the birds and uh, another band called the birds b-i-r-b-i-r-d-s stole their name so yeah <laughs> We're talking about Ron Wood. Ronnie Wood. Ronnie Wood. Or Woody, I guess, is yeah, what Woody's they call what they him, right? Called him. That was his, that's his nickname. Uh, he started off as, yeah, he joined Jeff Beck, the Jeff Beck group, I think the same time that Rod Stewart did, and as his bass player. And, uh, yeah, so they had some, that album Truth became pretty, uh, pretty popular. And then there was a group called... Um, the small faces that was kind of popular at the same time. It's all too beautiful. It's all too and they were led by a guy by the name of Steve Marriott. Well, Steve Marriott decided he wanted to rock out a little bit more than the uh, the small faces were able to to do. So he formed Humble Pie with Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton. Yeah, the pretty boy. Pretty boy, Peter they, Frampton. Uh, well, Jeff Beck was uh, a, he wasn't a founding member of the Yardbirds, but he joined fairly soon. Uh, he was, Did he take Clapton's place? It's or, pretty impressive, the guitarist that came to that group. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, some of the guitarists. That, so Jeff Beck, uh, Eric Clapton, and a uh, guy Jimmy who Page. joined the band as a bass player. Did he? Jimmy Page joined the Yardbirds Jimmy, as a bass yeah, he, player? He joined the, I had no idea. Yeah, pretty soon they discovered, I think Jeff Beck left. This and, this podcast should be a, a, a <laughs> light of hope for all bass players. <laughs> so uh, so Jeff Beck, and um, I think that when Jeff Beck left, Jimmy Page became the, the lead guitar player. So, uh, yeah, so that Yardbirds were just kind of a guitar manufacturing uh, machine. So, 
Rod Stewart joined a band called Shotgun Express in 66. What a horrible name. <laughs> Wait, they're probably trying to sound American. And other members of that band included Mick Fleetwood, who later had some success with a band uh, called Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood and, the founder, <laughs> and the founder of Fleetwood Mac, Peter Green, the uh, another great, fantastic, unbelievable guitar player yep. of this period, uh, who uh, was the original leader of Fleetwood Mac. Rod Stewart's not quite the um, Forrest Gump as uh, uh, some of the others, but he, he's in the Forrest Gump uh, neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> the Gumpian hood. Yeah. Yes. Very Gumpian uh, with his content. Well, so how did he end up with... I, I still don't know how he ended up in the Jeff Beck group. I think uh, everybody... All these people, like we've talked about on so many other podcasts, all these guys are hanging out together. They're all hearing each other in clubs. Okay, that makes and sense. Everybody knew this was the magic voice. Well, and yeah. Beck needed a singer, and Beck had the stature and went in there and got him, and they put out Truth, which is just... But hit, I mean, they, they were bigger in the U.S. than they were in the U.K. That, al that album hit number 15 in the U.S. charts and didn't chart in the U.K. at all. Is that right? And a lot of people talk about that album as being laying the groundwork for heavy metal. Like, it was the first sort of album that made blues sound hard in a way that heavy metal grabbed and ran with. Yeah, and uh, if, if you've never listened to Jeff Beck play guitar... Uh, the guy, um, in my opinion, has more control over the noises his guitar makes yeah. and has a wider vocabulary than almost any guitar player I know about. It may not always be emotionally um, evocative, or, uh, uh, but if, like a, a cerebral listen, uh, you're going, wow, look at, how does he do it? And he's moving knobs and yeah. well, just, it's just incredible. He looks effortless. When and he he's extremely important to Rod Stewart because Rod Stewart talks about how he learned, he became a singer in that band and learned how to do his phrasing and learned how to sing with a guitarist. Like that's yeah. where he learned what he would take later on in life and really, really stretch. Yeah. And I, I remember one time uh, listening to little Steven's show and, He's talking about they're all sitting in someone's basement and someone brings in uh, Jeff Beck's album Truth and they're listening to it and they're all going crazy. <laughs> and somebody said, Rod Stewart's white and no one believed them. That's funny. And, well, that was kind of a common thing back then. And same thing yeah. happened with Steve Winwood, I think. And, yeah. and another guy we talked about in American that we brought up again or brought up when we talked about both of them before. Um, Alex, Chilton. Alex Chilton. People were amazed that they were these skinny little young white guys singing with all this soul and power behind their yeah. voice. That's that's what happened back uh, in the good old days when people were on the uh, radio and not on television. <laughs> anyway, after uh, after Beck, he bumps into this band that was the Small Faces. Got got rid of the small and became the Faces. Ron, 
Ronnie Wood ends up playing with them. They don't have a lead singer at the time. They're just farting around in the studio practicing, and Rod Stewart's just hanging out. He's hanging out there, and they convince him to sing a couple of songs. (laughs) It's just bizarre to me. He's just sitting there, you know, in the other room listening to what they're doing, and they finally... and and, uh, Ian McLagan, who uh, was the keyboardist of the Small Faces, uh, you know, said he was shy. Which is kind of funny. You'd never think think that he'd be shy. That he was shy and he wouldn't, uh, you know, it was hard to get him out of his shell. But once he got in there and started singing, uh, it it kind of blew him away. And they were singing, they would do, they would jam together and sing, you know, various songs and and realize they had something there. Yeah. And and the story I heard, I don't know how true this is, but the story I heard about them losing the small was because once Ron Wood and, and Rod Stewart joined the band, they're significantly taller than the other guys. So they, <laughs> I don't know how true that is. I think Rod Stewart's 5'10 and Ron Wood's 5'9 or something like that, but they dropped the small because of that. That's what I heard. Well, that wouldn't work nowadays. Kids are better fed. And one, one of the things, there was uh, some hesitation between uh, Ronnie Lane and uh, I can't remember who else was, uh, maybe it was McLagan, but were uh, uh, worried about another prima donna. After having uh, Steve Marriott, yeah, so uh, I think those worries might have been founded on uh, <laughs> some some reality. Yeah, based on some of the stories that I've heard. Well, I I, I read a little bit of Ian McLagan's book. Yeah, I read it, and and he he does admit that he had a little bit of, of a chip on his shoulder early on when when Rod Stewart joined the band like he was he was very standoffish and and probably for those very reasons he was concerned about yeah what what this guy was bringing to the table outside of this great voice nothing would make singing in a band less fun than knowing that Rod Stewart might be singing backup <laughs> while you're singing up <laughs> it happened <laughs> and it just it's just why it's it's like you're trying to play guitar and um Eric Clapton walks into the room yeah you're not going to keep holding on to the guitar anymore well, the th- before he joins the faces he gets he gets signed to uh is it epic oh, that was mercury Decker. mercury it's mercury yeah he gets signed to mercury uh, for as a solo artist yeah and it's mercury uh, the faces actually had a bar on stage so that the band members didn't have to leave the stage to get a drink. <laughs> the the faces, I think, are some of the most fun music. It is ragged. Yeah. And um, some of it's almost... Have you ever heard of parallel play? Like two-year-olds? Yeah. yeah. They'll sit down next yeah. to each other and play with blocks. Yeah. And they won't have anything to do with yeah. each other. <laughs> They're just both playing next to each yeah. other. And, and every now and then they'll say something to each other. I, but they and and that's attention. what these guys kind of sound like. <laughs> if you listen to the bass playing and uh, the drumming, it's, we're kind of supporting everything else. Well, what about this? This yeah, is fun. I mean, a lot of that probably has to do with the amount of alcohol they were consuming on stage. But they, they developed, because uh, they weren't exactly selling a lot of albums in terms no. of, of what they were doing. But man, their live shows were evidently something else and they toured incessantly i think the year this album came out uh, that we're talking about tonight i think they had done already done four tours of the u.s wow yeah it's funny I, my, my favorite description of the band is from ian mcclagan when he said they were they were uh 
there were a bunch of guys with the same haircut but one hair dryer. <laughs> and then when this when this album he said when this album came out, uh, that was the end of those days. No yeah. longer were they sharing a hair dryer. <laughs> so yeah, so the story goes that yeah, Rod Stewart had his own recording contract with Mercury before he joined Faces. Uh, he didn't really expect to have the success that he was having. And so he was continuing to play with the faces. And uh, in Ian McLaughlin's book, he just, you can just kind of see the traje- trajectory where Rod Stewart was becoming more and more of a uh, more of a superstar. Right. And the rest of the band was just kind of coasting. And they were, so they were doing uh, shows together and they were being billed as Rod Stewart with the faces or the, and, the faces featuring Rod Stewart, yeah, the faces featuring well, Rod Stewart. And he was sitting on his own. Tour, he had his own tour bus. And um, there was with well, a story that I heard when they were making Ooh La La was Rod Stewart would just come into the studio pretty much just to lay down uh, vocals. vocals. And he at one point, the story I heard was the songs were, or some of the songs were in the wrong key. And he he walked out and wouldn't come back till the songs were in the right key. Well, they got their prima donna, didn't they? Yeah, and then that's why Rod Ron Wood sings the the title track of the album. makes a nice commercial now somebody has well it's Volkswagen or something. It, it's this weird thing where uh because of a solo album and, and i'm assuming they were on separate labels i think they were because contractually the faces aren't listed on any of their stuff on any of his solo stuff but he would yeah. do something where he'd release a solo album then the faces album would come out he'd release a solo album faces album would come out yeah so he's like doubling down <laughs> yeah he's hitting he's hitting twice the payload and these guys are watching this going wait wait and a they're minute saying that uh that they would even do a lot of his solo stuff on, in the later year do his solo stuff on the faces tours well I, I, that makes sense because yeah. for one thing they a lot of those I mean, they play on a lot of that stuff yeah they do i think ian mcclogan well, and they wrote some of the songs well ronnie wood and and, and rod stewart wrote at least two of the three songs that he wrote on this on steve <laughs> And then Steve Marriott and Ronnie Lane wrote um, "By Way of Giving" on Gasoline Alley. And then uh, Ian McCloggan, I think, plays on every single one of them. It's a strange, strange. Everything's strange. Uh, these, these. He's with the. It's hard to track them if you're just dabbling. I remember when I was young, I couldn't figure out how did Jeff Beck get a superstar like Rod Stewart to record with him. Yeah. Right. And it took me my brain years to figure out, oh, this is before. <laughs> right. And then uh it always confused me with the faces and Rod Stewart's yeah. albums coming one one came out then the other. Yeah. I said, What's going on here? Right. And when you understand the contract, it makes sense. I was yeah. parallel playing at that time those albums were coming out. <laughs> this is a t- parallel playing on a whole new level. But yeah. um anyway, so he puts out two albums that go, uh, they do all right. One's called the Rod Stewart album. The next one's called Gasoline Alley. I can't remember how high Gasoline Alley got yeah, up. Gasoline Alley, it, it got some ink. I mean, it got, it got it, pretty, pretty got, far up yeah, there. Yeah, pretty far up there. And then 
And then Man. after that, tonight's <laughs> album, which we probably should start. This is a monster. It is. It, yeah, it hit number one in the UK, the US, I think Australia, Canada. It, he is the first artist to have the number one album and the number one single at the same time. Think about that. The first artist to make to do wow. that. Of the Beatles didn't do it. Beatles, yeah. Elvis didn't do it. <laughs> Rod Stewart did it. And <laughs> do you think that helped relationships with the faces when he had <laughs> that kind of fame and that kind well, of money coming yeah. in? It, yeah, the thing is, is, like I said, I mentioned, they went from sharing a, uh, a blow dryer to, I believe, when, after this album had its success, he ended up living in the same, I kid you not, the same neighborhood as the Queen. The, I, I want to say something funny about that number one single. Uh-huh. It's a song called Maggie May. It's a B-side. Yep. <laughs> no. I don't know, other than the purposeful uh, B-side on the Beatles. Um, uh, Sergeant, or, um, uh, Strawberry Fields. Strawberry uh, Fields and uh, Penny Lane. Other than that, I never heard of a B-side I guess play, played more on the radio now than the A side. Well, I mean, it's not even close. Yeah, I mean, it's just well, Maggie what happened May is a radio. Uh, it's it's going to be it's, it's going to be played on some stations every day. What well, yeah. what happened, and I don't want to get too much into it because we'll talk about when the song comes up. But what essentially happened was when that song started getting more airtime than the A side, they flipped it. And that became the A side of the single after that. And and how did uh, you know who Rod credits for giving Maggie May the the chance? Uh, Cleveland, yeah, radio Cle- Cleveland. Son- yeah, no, I knew that. I thought you knew the name of the guy. Some Cleveland disc jockey. It's always when, happening. Always it happens. is. That's Cleveland. what you know. People, like Chrissy Hines said. That's why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's is. exactly what I was going to say. People wonder why it's there. It's because it's a rock. I mean, Cleveland rocks, right? Well, <laughs> They, they thank you, Alan. For chance, and they're, they're listening for music, and they're not taking orders from someplace. Yeah. But or they uh, used to. I don't uh, know what the hell's going on now. Just real quick, a couple more stats about this. So this album, uh, so it's number one. Like I said, it uh, it's dislodged from the top spot by Imagine by John Lennon, and Whoa. then the following week, it knocks Imagine off the top spot to reclaim <laughs> number one. The Another only reason to love this album. The only album that sold more than this album in 1971 was Bridge Over Troubled Water, Simon Garfunkel. Oh, okay, that's well, um, an excuse. Another fine one. And the only single that sold more than Maggie May, any guesses? Superstar by The Carpenters. No, it kept Superstar off the number one list. In 71? Yeah. Mm. MacArthur Park? My Sweet Lord. Oh, <laughs> Okay. There we are. Back by by Harrison. And- For those of you who don't know, by George Harrison. All right. So let's get into the album, guys. All righty. So let's start with, uh, I think, the good place to start is side one, track one. Don't you guys think right. so? You That's been that. our tradition. Yeah, At one that. time we did uh, the right side and then went to the left side. That is true. We did do that. So the first song on this album is Every Picture Tells a Story. <laughs> written by Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood. Okay, uh, someone needs to get the tranquilizer gun for me because 
I don't know if I'm going to be able to stop talking about what a great song this is and yeah. how anybody who thinks they're doing rock and roll needs to check in with this song yeah. before they go well, a step further. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk r- real briefly about the structure of the song because it's not your typical song. It's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's verse, 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 verse. And, uh, and then chorus <laughs> then catches chorus. up with all the choruses in the the 24 end. times at the end. Yeah. But, uh, and it's very free form. It doesn't always rhyme. I mean, there's no reason really it tra- for traditional reasons why this song should work the way it does. And yeah, it does and, and work. And it's six minutes long. Yeah. Um, and then all of it, a sudden background vocals come in at towards the It very doesn't, to me, and I'm always the one complaining about this, it doesn't feel six minutes long. Mm-mm. I I will say I could use with maybe 15 less every picture tells a story at the end of the song. But yeah, that's a nitpick. Uh, I, I could listen to this if it was just the drummer going nuts. So let's, uh, real quick, that's one thing I want to bring up about the drummer. The drummer... Who's on this album? Uh, Kenny Jones plays on some of it, but the drummer who is on this is like half of his drum kit missing, or parts of his drum kit missing. The story that I heard on one of the sessions that they were doing for this, and I don't know if it was this song, the hammer that he uses for his kick drum, he forgot it. Wait, who is this? This is this is a guy by the name of Mickey Waller. Okay, uh, he was like a very sought after drummer uh and at the time but he was but he in this particular session he forgot his the hammer for his kick drum so they <laughs> fashioned a way to put a drumstick in the kick for the kick drum so what you're actually why that's maybe one of the reasons why oh, some wow. of these songs why the kick drum why doesn't come across quite as well as it as huh. it could um so interesting yeah the drums on this are fascinating and on this particular song if you want to know what this album is going to sound like it is sloppy it is it it almost sounds like a bunch of guys are playing songs for the first time and he comes in (laughs) just a beat early on this on this when he when he when the drums come in and it's like i said it's sloppy It, it sounds almost unprofessional but that's what to me, makes this album but, so good. But what it also has going for it is something, in my opinion, something we talked about on the Dave Mason album, which is it is acoustic guitar yeah. heavy. And yep. and th- and those acoustic guitars, I think, Doug, you were the one that mentioned it in the Dave Mason episode, that just add a fullness to the sound that you just can't get without yeah. them. Well, yeah. You know, if you think about it being a, a symphony, it would be like the acoustic guitars are the strings and then the electric guitar would be the the horns like the high the, mm-hmm. the trumpets on top coming through and it the the other thing that the songwriting is just like the plane it sounds like it is in meter it sounds like it is <laughs> rhyming but it isn't it isn't <laughs> the, yeah. the rhymes uh funk and luck yeah, no, it's 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 like I said. There's no reason this song should work in terms of traditional songwriting, but yeah. it does. Um, yeah, and I, I think I, it's one of the hardest songs for me to listen to one time. Yeah, on the planet, it's yeah. my favorite song on this album. It's my second favorite Rod Stewart album. I mean, song of all. Uh, 
It's not my favorite song, but it's a great song. And I remember hearing this song a lot on the radio growing up. That's a great opener, too. It's a fantastic opener. But, you know, back when progressive radio would play stuff that wasn't a single, they would glom on to something. And this song was played a lot. I heard yeah. this song a lot growing up. And it's, what, it's definitely Ronnie Wood playing it's bass. Scott Ronnie Wood all so over. So does he nothing play? makes me regret the fact that he's just drowning himself with the Rolling Stones. All that time he spent with them doing something somebody else could have done, and he should have been doing this. Well, yeah. and 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 uh, not to get too deep into that, he's also, the guy's written some amazing songs. Yeah. He's a great songwriter, yeah. and he doesn't, I don't think, gets the opportunity to do that as much in the shadow of the Glimmer Twins. But um, I think this outrocks anything the Rolling Stones ever did. You're not going to hear any complaints from me I'm, on that. And statement. I mean, <laughs> it should have continued. If Rod Stewart hadn't died in '78, <laughs> one other thing about this song: this is autobiography. This is what happened when Rod Stewart quit digging graves and told his dad he's going to leave. Uh, he went to France and. Uh, Slept around a lot. <laughs> Slept under bridges, and he went to uh, Rome. I, and uh, I don't know if he went to Asia or not. I didn't read that, but uh, well, that's where he met. Uh, the vampire? Met, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, Shanghai and Lil, who never used the pill. Um, Didn't she bite his neck, too? Well, she took him on deck and bit his neck. That's right. So Shanghai Lil may be do some... Uh, some uh, money for a child out there. Um, I, and this song does something that we've talked about before that I love, where the the, the music drops out at one point. Yeah, and, and it comes, and, it, and it's just great. It's that part where he sings, "I firmly believed I didn't need anyone." Yeah, you know. Um, yeah. And, and uh, is that Maggie Bell singing background yeah. on this? Yeah, and her sister. Well, she's that really works too. She's con, she was con, I don't know much about her other than I, I read she was considered the Janis Joplin of the UK. So that tells you something about what she could do. Yeah, you, you know I can't quote you no Dickens, Shelley or Keats, but it's all been said before. <laughs> this is a great song. Yeah, yeah. This is a great song. Great opener. Great. Uh, yeah, it's great. It's lyrics. one of really good lyrics describing a young man. Yeah. Uh, roaming around and he he did say that during this part of the, his life he stunk all the time yeah because <laughs> he thought it was part of counterculture yeah um <clears throat> that doesn't go well with uh being a sex symbol but. moving on seems like a long time written by theater anderson Sears is the pianist on this, mm -hmm. and does anybody know the Pete Sears? Jefferson Airplane, the Jefferson Airplane wow, bass player, yeah, is the pianist on this. Better known for being the keyboardist and bassist for, I guess he was he with the Airplane, yeah, he was Airplane and then Starship. But yeah, so he actually does play bass on some Rod Stewart albums later, but he doesn't play Can, bass on this. Does but. he? Does Ron Wood play bass on all this stuff? Almost all every track. The bass is. on this album is great. Yeah, it is, and it's. Uh, 
It's distracting. It is. It's I'm, almost I'm like he. What's he gonna do next? Well, you can tell. I, I think you can tell. It's it's. Uh, he's a guitarist yes, because the bass playing is is, is not. It's not. It's, it's almost not, like it's not, not rhythm. Playing, it's not playing a supportive. No, role. it's not. <laughs> it's like he almost forget. He almost forgot that he was the bass player. Yeah, but it's like, great. I'm with Doug. I love listening to it, but it is distracting. Well, as a bass player, sometimes I wish he were a little bit more in the pocket. In the pocket. But, that's another but, thing. You got to start drinking when JM says in the pocket yeah. from now on. But I will say it works on this album. Yeah. This whole album is makes most of this album makes no sense. It is. I, I agree a, with you. There's so there's a little bit of history about this song. This song was originally re- released by a, a, a folk rock group called Brewer and Shipley in 1970, and it and the version of that, if you have listened to it sounds like that really mellower folky side of the birds it sounds nothing like this um yeah uh and and their big their big thing was like intricate acoustic guitars and vocal harmonies and it's not i mean rod stewart takes a song and makes this something else better uh ricky lee jones recorded later on too but even she can't hold a candle to this 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 song this This is one of, you know, he's quoted as saying he was always looking for a song that, like, I forget what it is. Like, he was looking for a song he could yeah. make his own or that he could own or that that his that would fit his voice well. Yeah. This is one of those songs that just does that really, really well. This is the part that he's doing that doesn't sound like the faces. Right. Right. And uh, one of my regrets about this song is that it's not recorded during World War II and the Battle of Britain. Um, it fits, you know, it's about wanting peace time to come back. Oh, yeah. Again. Yeah. It, it just always has uh, been uh, evocative of that, that idea of the poor British people after that struggle, how happy they must have been on VE Day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about the next track slash tracks. Uh, do we want to take them separately, even though they're billed as being together? Let's do them separately. I, I don't know why they're billed together. They should be. They separate. don't. They don't sound like they, they to go together. Not at all. Um, so let's talk about them separately. <laughs> <There's> nothing. <laughs> nothing about these songs that remind you of each other. So, so the next song on the album side on side one is "That's All Right." That's all right, my mama. This, there's no reason for this song to be on this album. No, no, there's no reason for this song to be on there. Now, when you talk about someone making a song their own, and there's plenty of people that can do that, they can make a song that's been famous or do- take a song that's been made famous by somebody else and make their own. He doesn't do that. Mm-mm. Elvis still owns this song after Rod Stewart sings it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Scotty and Moore doing that that lick on it is still the thing I keep yeah. trying to hear. That it's and- it's a strange thing because everything's done very well on this song yeah the singing is good the uh i think the band does a good job yeah the slide guitar is good job and even after everybody does everything that needs to be done uh there's no reason for it to be on here yeah the only thing that i can think of is that like i was telling you when we were talking about the start of the 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 album we were first talking about this album it just sounds like a bunch of guys jamming, and maybe they just took the first take of everything that they did. Yeah, because they the faces used to do that, so it doesn't. It's not out of the question because they used to just jam and play stuff like yeah. off the top of their head, 
you know, things that they someone would shout something out and they just start playing. In fact, I yeah. think their their playlists were uh, not to talk about them again, but their playlists were loosely like people going, "Okay, what's next? What's the next song?" And someone would just shout out a song and, and they'd, they'd start, start playing, playing. it. <laughs> so, but so, yeah, yeah, this is this does this does not fit well. I mean, I agree with you, Doug. There's nothing wrong with the mechanics of this song. Exactly. Yeah, it just is. It's just not. It doesn't. It. There's it's just no like, reason like for we were talking here. about Tennessee Stud with uh, Johnny yep. Cash. Like it didn't need to be on there. He, well, and I think, I think of all the things you could have put in it. Yeah, and I feel the same thing, same way about his cover of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And Why is this connected? Well, you know, he was uh, he was going to name the album Amazing Grace. Is that right? But Judy yeah. Collins beat him to it, so he decided to Thank name you. it. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Judy. I, I, I now the thing about this, it's listed as traditional. Yeah, which it actually is arranged by, and it's arranged by Rod Stewart. Which, yeah. um, no, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't understand. Was there, was there some kind of? explosion that kept people from uh, understanding this was written by John Newton. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't know I what, guess so. Yeah. <laughs> so right there. Maybe John, he's taking a, maybe he's taking some notes from Zeppelin and deciding just, that he does, just put yeah. traditional. Oh, it's traditional. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, and he, it, it's, it's all that, um, that Mitchell guy slide playing, Sam Mitchell's slide playing is what makes this song at all interesting i'm not saying that it, it it doesn't start off as amazing grace no and it sounds like he just all of a sudden started going into amazing yeah. grace and then rod stewart it's, decided he it's a weird it's a weird both of these songs are very strange and mm-hmm. they kind of yeah i hate to say this they take me out of the album when they're on well i i can't disagree with you i think he does both songs well yeah and there's no need for him to be on this record it right. just it 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 is a detour that doesn't get you back on the right highway. Right. Yeah. And it was written by a a, a, a Catholic clergyman who worked in slavery named John... Ne- oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. An Anglican clergyman <laughs> who uh, worked in slavery, uh, John Newton. And, of course, Amazing Grace is an amazing song. Uh, usually not paired with That's All Right. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've you know, seen it at a lot of funerals, and no one ever started out with "That's All Right." The uh, you know <laughs> the, the only other person that paired "That's All Right" with another song was uh, was the International Submarine Band and Graham Parsons, and they paired Folsom Prison Blues with "That's All Right," and I it sounds significantly better yeah, than I this. Can see that. I can well, see that being a... <laughs> you know, you you're uh, when you're doing Amazing Grace, you're you're not dealing with a piece of fluff that you can just uh, swing into and say, "All right, everybody." Get yourself another beer. Uh, <laughs> well, and when I when I was talking about listening to this album differently, I had forgotten this was on this album until I started listening again, and I went, "What? What? Oh, yeah, that's I, I right. I, I had forgotten this was on on the album as well." All right, let's move on. Let's let's, let's change course and things. talk to a, a talk about a good song. <laughs> Tomorrow is a long time, a Bob Dylan song. Ah, but only if my own true love is waiting. Yes, and if I could hear a heart softly pounding Only if she were lying by me Could I rest in my bed once again Closing outside one. Yep, so Rod Stewart is cheating. 
uh, you just go get yourself a Bob Dylan song. And uh, it's not like he's done everything you can do with it. And then you you uh, well, you plug it in and, and you, you got yourself a wonderful thing. Well, the, only, the only version that I've ever heard Dylan do is a live version. On the Greatest Hits album? Great, yeah, yeah. and it's great. Too. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's great. It's only if my own true love is weak If I could hear her heart is softly pounding It's only if she was lying by me I'd lie in my bed once again. The lyrics are heartbreaking. And he and when Dylan performs it, because I love yeah. that version of the song. I do it, too. it makes you want to what, Jam? It makes you want to boohoo. It does. And there you go. He, Take a big long one, folks. But I gotta say, Rod Stewart did an excellent, Absolutely. excellent version. Well, you know who else recorded this song? Uh in 66 elvis and and in fact dylan said at one point that is it was his most treasured cover this really? elvis version of the song yeah wow rod stewart does what he doesn't do with that's all right and makes this song his song yeah uh and let's let's talk real quick about i was gonna say violin but it's it's a fiddle it's a fiddle, it's a fiddle. it's a fiddle on this song mm-hmm and the way that it but comes you in, you don't play in Texas. You better have one of those in your band. <laughs> and it uh, and it sounds great. And so you also have that guy, um, Martin Quentin. He's the guy doing all the finger picking stuff and doing all the nylon strings. Yeah, he's the he's the guy who's he's the acoustic guitar virtuoso. Virtuoso, or I guess. But yeah, he plays that nylon string sound yeah. and stuff. And he's he's the next song. He we'll adds talk a about. lot of depth. He to does this. a lot, of, and he adds when he comes in on this. It's very subtle when he does, but it's it's really takes this song to a different level. And that violin part, the the fiddle part, um, yeah, it'll. No, it's this song is. He does a great. He knocks this it. song is great, yeah. and thank God it's there because it takes the taste of the previous two songs out of your yeah. mouth and leaves this side ending on a very fine note. Yeah, and the fact I don't know where he found this song. How? Who else? Well, you remember the weird thing about this is there are people recording Dylan songs that nobody else knows, so uh-huh. they must have some sort of access to them. Yeah, because there are a ton of Dylan. When we talked about uh, the, Birds the Birds album, yeah. there were two songs on that that had never been released. They were yep. just basement tapes. Judy Collins has covered it uh, before. Oh. Joan Baez had already covered it. A lot of people uh, did yeah. this song, yeah. didn't they? Kingston Trio. If you haven't heard the original, the Dylan version, the live version Jam talked about, it it's r- remarkable. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to flip it over, and we're going to go to side two, song number, well, I, I mean... Yeah, it's again, what, do you, what is it? Henry. Song, song number zero is Henry, <laughs> yeah, what, which is just an introduction. It's an introduction, which, I, which, when you understand why it's on here, it's kind of a nice story. Rod Stewart wanted to give uh, Martin Quint. How do you say his last name? Quinton. 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 Yeah. Uh, a, a little bit more credit, and he knew, regardless of the length of the song, it's only thirty seconds long, that he's going to get credit. He's going to get royalties from this song being on the album. Well, and he yeah. helped write the next song, which probably produced some royalties too. Yeah. This guy, Martin Quinton, uh, really didn't play much 
for anybody else other than Rod Stewart. I don't think he, I think he was sort of just a bloke. Yeah. Hanging around. Just hanging around and uh, he suffered from some sort of mental illness and, but he, so he did this and he did the, the, the start of uh, You Were It Well. Yeah. Also, he's got to be one of the most un, under, like unsung, unsung heroes of the of the, this era. Those first two or those albums by Rod Stewart, at least those two albums. And in song one, side two, what do we have? Well, we have a hit, but it wasn't. <laughs> it didn't even make it on the, the A side of the. Single. It didn't make it on the A side of the single, and actually, Rod Stewart wanted to le- originally leave it off the album. Wake up, Maggie. I- That's nuts, and I don't know who uh, was working for the um, record company at this time, but um, if somebody heard well, that song and said that's a B-side, they should I, be fired. I don't know, because, right because Rod Stewart talking about this song, and a lot of people talking about it, say it's just one of those songs that had some sort of fairy dust sprinkled on it. It almost came out of nowhere. Nobody expected it to do what it did. Uh, again, it's got a very kind of untraditional structure to it. There's not, It's not verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Um, you know what it's inspired by, right? I mean, outside of the true story that it's inspired on, but the name, where the name comes from. If you think about the Let It Be album, there's a little ditty that John and Paul sing, this little, this little Liverpudlian folk song about a prostitute called Maggie May. Well, oh, that's the one that she used to live down dirty there. Dirty Maggie May. Yeah. yeah. And that's about a real person. Well, maybe. I don't know. But uh, like she was in the tubes or something. But uh, when. That's what they call them over there. The, the they subways. They go so in tubes. When, uh, when Martin Quinton was, he was at Rod Stewart's house and he's picking the guitar and he's playing this 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 part of this song and for some reason it reminded rod stewart of that beatles liverpudlian folk song so he started singing along with it and then that kicked in the gear this memory of him losing his virginity when he's 16 years old that right at that jazz fest and then he the rest of it he just just came naturally i guess well it's a very very good song it's not my favorite song on the album it's a great song. You know, it's one I, I of the think, few that's on that heavy rotation on FM radio that yeah. I can still stand to hear I, when it comes on. I was going to say, I wonder how much of that is something that Doug's hit on multiple times, which is this familiarity breeds breeds contempt. I agree with you. This is not a song I get sick of hearing, but, but along with JM, it's like, okay, I've heard it so many times. times. Yeah. It, is there some? Is there, it makes other songs on this album that I like stand out above it because of that i, I think that's possible the uh, this is just like ever pictures tells a story again you have crazy weird rhyme schemes yeah yeah uh that don't stay consistent then you have this loose band that's not being tied down uh yeah there is not a uh 80 what is that called the people that have to put everything in their little rows um what is that called uh Obsessive compulsive. Yeah, you don't yeah. have one of those people in charge you of this. You got that. What are the just? This is almost this is anal. Like, this is an anal uh, 
retentive. This is anal expulsive. And <laughs> everything is just... <laughs> That's a lovely image. Everything is just loose. And um, I think yeah. that gives it more life. You know, sure. this is... And then a mandolin comes in, doesn't make any yeah. sense. So this is... I, I read someplace that this is the most popular song that's ever featured the mandolin. Uh, close second, oh, they say. I was going to say that. Yeah. It's, they say a close second is probably the theme to The Godfather. <laughs> 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 but... Uh, I almost always think mandolins so, yeah. are unnecessary and that someone's forcing it into the song. Uh, I'm a Lubin Brothers fan. I never get sick of the mandolin. It's played by this guy named Ray Jackson. From Linda's Farm. Linda's not, Farm. not Maggie's Farm? No, and the funny thing about him is he's billed on the... If you Don't you have the album someplace, Doug? He's yeah. billed on the album as the mandolin player from Linda's Farm. I forget <laughs> his name. I think that's how he's billed. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it's this is this is a this is a great song, and I I agree. It it's hard to get sick of it, but it is played a lot. It's played a lot. Um, yeah. I, one I, of the I can't think of very many other songs that could withstand the number of plays, the onslaught of planes. One one of the funny uh, there's a number of Beatles songs I feel that way about that I could <laughs> I don't get sick of hearing. Um, but one one of the funny things about this song is when it got on top of the pops, the faces were were his band because you're not play, actually playing you're m mimicking stuff on top yeah. of the tops of pops so the faces got on and, and played on stage with him but they had a special guest playing mandolin or fake playing mandolin is john peel the the famous uk disc jockey the other cool thing about this is i just found this out today there is video from 1961 of rod stewart at this jazz fest that's on youtube really yeah yes and it's i mean it's pretty incredible what you can find on oh, the interwebs like 16 he's 16 wow yeah so i guess we sort of talked around the the thing this song's about a 16 year old rod stewart losing his virginity yeah at a jazz festival we're going to move on to song number two speaking on speaking of mandolins this this is my favorite song in the album Found it hard to hide my tears. I felt ashamed. I felt I'd let you down. No mandolin wind couldn't change a thing. Not only is this my favorite song on the album, this has to be my favorite song he's ever written. And he wrote it by himself. I know. And the lyrics are you know they're they're emotional they're they, well, some people speculate it's about uh mental illness i don't know what not the cold not uh it's it's but yeah, going when, through a hard time. yeah those people are are drunk <laughs> this is where i could say that i think the influence of dylan really hit uh rod yeah, stewart I can see that. because these these lyric the the imagery there's a lot of imagery, but there's no story necessarily. It, it, no, it's all emotion. This song is all bare-boned emotion. I mean, the first line is it's for, when the it's for chicks. It's for getting chicks when the, for free. Yeah, when the rains came, I thought you'd leave. Yeah, because I knew how much you loved the sun. The moment in the song, uh, the part where he sings about feeling ashamed about letting his wife down towards the end of the song. Yeah, and oh. then and and then he does that. 
Yeah, it, it's yeah, just I, the most exactly. I was wondering. Was now, now of, y'all understand why Rod full of gets pain. paid so much for yeah. making ooh ooh noises. But that yeah. that that particular one. I mean, he does that a couple but, of times in the song. But it's just it, the 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 last line. He sees her pale yeah. pale face, and it makes him cry. Yeah. and then he he feels sorry for what he's done. Yeah, and then did she? die and he's crying because of it i don't or? know but there i think so and the, the amount of pain he's able to put just in that last line before he does the ooh ooh, ooh and then in that ooh ooh, ooh yeah. is he sells start, it and then the drum then yeah. everything kicks up and then he, but then he does that and then he starts doing the la la la, la yeah, thing yeah. which is kind of a little change of pace but yeah, this song is this song is fantastic. A, it comes to an end and has to get restarted several times. Yeah, but that's the thing I like about it. It's like okay, no, it's, it's about to be done. No, and it doesn't follow the structure. Again, you got that um, Martin Quinnington doing those uh, those nice little finger picking things that bring in each interlude, and then you have that slide guitar player uh, Sam Mitchell coming in doing those that one part. And it's just like everybody gets to show. Is that that's a that's not a steal? It's a slide. It's a slide. It's okay. a. I think it's a. Uh, might be a national steal that he's playing. Well, there is. Well, it's because he won't let his girlfriend play it. <laughs> we, uh, everything. Oh yeah. Then when he talks talk. about yeah, I will, I'll. Uh, I'll the next teach word, you someday. Because I know you I don't play. Well, yeah. Well, I guess we didn't talk about the fact that there's a resonator on this album in a couple of places. Yeah, I think that's what he's playing. Okay. On Have you guys ever heard of the Everly Brothers version of this? No. The Everly Brothers recorded this song. Wow. Well, I bet that's not bad at all. It's uh it's odd how much they sound like Rod Stewart. <laughs> but I, I would say if there is any reason for you to pick up this album, it's because of this song. I, I, and if you you know, a lot of people when I say that Rod Stewart's perhaps my favorite rock and roll singer, they're always like they look at me like what? I thought he died in 1978. <laughs> um, I just thought he was sexy in 1978. Yeah, exactly. Well, what y'all are talking guy. about is one of the reasons I chose this record because uh, there's there's a dividing line, and uh, I think if we get some people to the earlier part of his career, we'll be doing them a great favor. Well, yeah. and this I, song is. An ideal place to it's, start. It's yeah. hard to argue that this guy isn't one of the greatest rock and roll singers. And period. he can write a damn song. He's not my favorite, yeah. but he's one of the greatest. So anybody looks at you funny when you say that. I can't. Maybe when, drop when, when who's your kid. favorite singer, rock and roll singer in the world? He's usually the first one that comes up in, in, into my head. Because well, here's another way to look at it: if you could start, you're you're about to be born, and God says, uh, "Which voice would you want?" I'd pick this one right away because I don't even think I'd have to be talented to yeah. have hits with that voice. Yeah, I wouldn't need anything else but that interesting. One, that one, his. I don't. Somebody needs to figure out why a raspy voice is so appealing. Well, and, it's a motive in a way. It is. Um, it's like a distorted guitar. But it, why, I think because it? it has to be. Yeah. Because it's not beautiful. I mean, it is. It can be, but for the most but part, it's it is, not. It, his vocals but, on this are beautiful. No, they are. That's why I said they can be. Yeah. But nobody can, nobody can say why it's that way. But right. When you listen to Wilson Pickett or any of these guys that are singing at the top of their range and it's breaking and it sounds fantastic, Otis or Jan, yeah. Janis Joplin, uh, why 
Why do we well, do it's, that? It, it's funny. Uh, I never thought about this until you said this. One of my favorite things that uh, McCartney does when he yeah, sings when he breaks, yeah, is so when he, he gets growl that growly thing that he does. Yeah, and, and he, he can do, or, he or when Lennon does it, yeah, and twist and shout. Yeah, That's his yeah. best vocal performance of and, all time. And, and and until you said it, I never realized that. Oh, but darling, I, I yeah. find I find that appealing, really appealing when McCartney gets gravelly like that and, and gets. It's not he just to, us? Yeah, the yeah. the world finds it like Kim Carnes. Yeah, uh, singing uh, Betty, Betty Davis eyes. That, that's or it's a heartache. It, when yeah, she it's does a it. heartache. God, that's a that'll make you boo. <laughs> and man, at that voice, you just dig it. And yeah. but I I would love for somebody who listens to this podcast if they have an explanation about why that gruff sound is so appealing. Somebody that knows psychology. Yeah. Tell us what's going on on that deal. Yeah, we're too busy doing research for the podcast to learn about <laughs> that. Right. Y'all can pitch in a little bit every now and then. We can't even do our day jobs. We spend so much time yeah. on this podcast. But this yeah. is your my boss podcast. listens to this podcast. So I don't say this. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along. Nobody wants to leave that song. No, we don't. But we're going to move on to number three. I'm losing you, or I know I'm losing you. Temptation song. Now, this is what's fascinating to me. Rod Stewart says he'd wanted to do this song for a while because he loved the Temptations, and he brought it to the Faces, and they said, no, they don't want to do it. So he saved it for a solo album. Yet, this is the Faces doing this song. It's the only song in the album where it's the Faces. It is the Faces. And so it's a, I don't understand that. They're like, oh, we don't want to do it, yet they do it. And did it, did it matter if it was on a Faces album or a Rod Stewart album? I, I mean, this, this sound, this is the most professional sounding song on the album, too. And yeah, you can kind of tell that, yeah, they got in, they brought some guys in. Yeah, you know, like you got Kenny Jones, who's one of my favorite drummers, uh, just pounding this. Skins, and then you got Ian McLaughlin. Ian McLaughlin plays Hammond organ on a couple of tracks, but well, this is his his piano playing on this is is remarkable. Yeah, is this this is the only song he plays piano on. Yeah, and it is, and it's and it's funny because you no one has to tell you this is the faces doing this song because it's the only song on this album that jumps off the grooves and says this <laughs> this is <laughs> we're here. Yeah, yeah, but but they do. He does this on. Almost every album that he did before, I guess, what's the one, Tonight's the Night, or whatever, the one was 75. He always throws in some sort of Motown, some sort of stats. Right, well, and because he thing. can pull it off. He, he, he does a great job of it. Nobody needs to mess with a song, The Temptations. No, and this yeah. is this is another song like the other two on the yeah. first side where it's like, I feel a, I feel a little bit differently about this because it's, a I think, a better song all well, around. The band, the band is really turning up the uh, the energy on this song. Yeah, it's, and the, it's guitar, a, the, the opening guitar riff. If somebody told me, yeah, it doesn't really need to be on the album, but I want something I can play live, yeah. I'd go, okay, I get it. Yeah, Because yeah. I, I can see this tearing the house down and he does everything right and the band sounds fantastic yeah. but i'm not too far away from where i was on uh that's all right yeah I just, yeah I, and then, it, well I, it's because you want to get to the next song well yeah <laughs> I, I, know get he, I know what he can do yeah when he's not doing 
Motown. I, I don't need them to do Motown. No. I need them to write another mandolin. Well, win. and exactly. And that's not what these solo albums were supposed to be anyway. That's what the Faces albums were, were these yeah, sort yeah. of R&B, soul-infused, blues-infused, drunk, you know, yeah. rock and roll albums. These yeah. were more... A lot kind of, of ballads. Yeah. It's a good version of a great song that has a better version. Well, I think I think what Doug said earlier about there's certain moments that keep this album from being, I think for all of us, like a top tier. And it's those moments when you realize this is space that could have been taken up by something else that he's obviously capable of doing that would yeah. have elevated this to something yeah. else. Yeah. All right. So moving on to song number four, side two. know what that is you song foresight two is a <laughs> well it was a it was a single on it for this album <laughs> oh okay yeah it was the single it was the it. single it was the a side for the first single with maggie maybe in the b side yeah and it actually charted it got to number 62 on the hot 100 before maggie may even took off so it was doing a little bit of of yeah. uh yeah, you know, serviceable moving up the charts. I think that this is a another example of what Rod Stewart can do pretty well. He can take a very good folk song, song written in the folk Id- idiom, and turn it into something that is soulful. And there's not a lot of people that can really do that. And that's kind of what he is should be doing on this stuff you know yep. yeah this yeah. i think this song this cover is an example of the cover he should do uh, yeah. this is a tim harden uh yeah song a a, a folk singer which folk he played song. at woodstock this yeah. song was played at woodstock by tim harden yeah and i just I, up I'm, I'm, I'm expecting uh tony to say it's repetitive and, and it is but I, I I don't I but it's one of those songs I don't find repetitive. It, it the everything keeps changing. Yeah. Uh, in the song, I I love this song. It's a great song. I love the way. Not only do I love the song, I love the way it's done. Dumped. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Everybody's got to have their. When you're a teenager, you got to have a whole uh, cassette tape <laughs> full of uh, getting dumped songs, and this should be on anyone's yeah. getting dumped. Song. It's, a, it's a great song. You know, the interesting about this thing about this is that he he released it in, as a single in '93 again because he did an unplugged MTV unplugged yeah. with with Ronnie Wood, and it was the first time the two of them played yeah, together in, in 22 years. But no, I mean, think about that. They uh, the first time in 22 years that Ron Wood and Rod Stewart are playing together, which yeah. is a tragedy. Well, they're they're actually in the studio right now doing stuff. Thank God, a little late, fellas. Yeah. Well, Ian McLaughlin didn't need to be running around in pink, and somebody didn't need to be running around with the Stones. That's yeah. all I'm going to say. And I'm I not feel bitter at all. Feel bad that Ian McLaughlin's not part of it because he he passed what five years ago? Yeah, uh, December of 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Ron Wood and uh, Rod Stewart should never. I've been allowed to be a part. <laughs> they, th- this album and the faces, th- it proves that the gods of rock and roll put them together, and they let 
the world and the pup and uh, greed of the world separate them. <laughs> this is just like Catherine in uh, Wuthering Heights when she goes and lives down there with uh, Ashley What's-His-Face instead of staying with Heathcliff. Well, the two of them, yeah, some doctors should have gotten together and just sewed them together at the hips. I mean, they, they were so good together. There is nothing like watching the two of those guys on old footage playing together. Yeah, It's just the greatest. It, I mean, it, it has to be one of the greatest rock shows ever. Yeah. With everybody just out of out of control. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine being in that audience. More bands need bars on stages. <laughs> anyway so uh, let's uh so we so yeah that's the the last song of the album very very fine very fine way to end the album it is that i think so let's um we've been talking about the uh the death of of ron stewart we're rod stewart we're, we're not talking about his actual some death. of us prefer to live in an alternative reality right. where it did not go past 78 <laughs> So he, um, we all know what happened to Rod Stewart. He really started following the money and he started, his albums became increasingly, increasingly worse. And then culminating in 1978's Blondes Have More Fun, which has the inexcusable, Do You Think I'm Sexy? Which, and he's in pink. He's, uh, you should hear his kids talking about how embarrassed they were to see their dad wearing those clothes. <laughs> Actually, he even if you, you watch that Dan Rather oh, he, interview, he's he's not real fond of that that time he either. He says that he lost himself. Yeah, so here here is the uh, this is from Rolling Stone with their illustrated history of or illustrated encyclopedia of rock and roll. Rarely has a singer had a full and unique talent as Rod Stewart. Rarely has anyone betrayed his talent so completely. I that's sums it up perfectly and well and 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 one of the reasons i chose this record is some of you particularly those younger people out there do not know that blondes have more fun this tart in 78 once was and he calls himself that he says i look a bit like a tart uh <laughs> that was uh me being british was that way. a british accent uh, sorry <laughs> almost as good um, as mine I still think we send missionaries over there to help them talk right. Uh, this this guy was a great rock and roller, and his band. I'm, I mean, move over, Rolling Stones. I'm gonna put the faces above you, and yeah. I'm gonna put this voice so far above Mick Jagger. And um, oh, I'm getting all warm and cozy over here with this. <laughs> I, I, no, fuzzy I'm, feelings. I'm sorry. I don't think there's anyone who epitomized rock and roll better than this early yeah. early Rod Stewart in the faces and it's it's like Satan saved up all his power for years to turn him into a disco guy and <laughs> he just took out the number one guy and made him disco well, and then and on top of that this guy's making number one hits one after another he's making tons of money on this garbage yeah I'll to he his credit, have, he would have been he, rapping if he came out later. So, so there's two things about him. He he didn't go into the drug culture. He didn't go completely. He he did kind of keep his his sanity. He did like cocaine. 
He did like cocaine. Oh yeah, in fact, he he didn't he didn't ever snort it because he was worried about what it'd do to his vo- vocal cords. So he took right. it in a different manner. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. You know, and that does bring up the the gigantic rumor that we lived with this shelter. <laughs> and I watched a documentary, and that was actually addressed on a VH1 documentary. He's and answered it himself. He thought it was funny. He has said himself that he's, uh, that, uh, well, we won't get into it, but he is, yeah, he does think it's funny and completely. Well, to, and he has become one of the most self-deprecating people. And he has a lot to deprecate. Yeah. Well, and we're beating up on him, but he wasn't the only artist at this time that felt the lure of disco and decided to dive headfirst into but it. But did anyone else destroy them themselves? You didn't see Mick Jagger putting on leopard pants and well, and and I mean, this is the most absolute surrender and and, and we're talking about an extraordinary talent. Now, having said all of that. If I can make the money, do you think I'm sexy and and dance around like that? I can't say that I wouldn't do it. I think it's likely I would get paid more not to do that a- than I would to get paid to do that. <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't end on this sad note. About he has what happened. kind of re- he has done some things. He, well, he has called attention to the uh, the Great American Songbook. He has. Well, done. I don't think that was good. Okay. But but let's let's end on this note, Ron Wood. Rod Stewart, uh, who else? The, the remaining faces are all in the studio right now. Kenny Jones recording new music. Yeah. That's good. And he's what is he? Seventy-two years old now. Um, yeah, it might be a little bit late, but still looks pretty good. It don't matter how you look. That's we've got him in this other, trouble in the first. The place. other thing we failed to mention is why we're experts on this album. Well, let's go into that. We need to. We can't let people leave people hanging as to why that is. Jam, do you want to talk? Well, we're experts on this album because one of the uh, main founding members of the Small Faces and the Faces, and who plays on this album that we were talking about and subsequent albums, is a guy by the name of Ian McLaughlin, Mac, who lived here in Austin, Texas, for a extended period of time who one of our friends beaver nelson has employed to play keyboards for and uh, was he, he in uh, he played on a beaver nelson he played album? on a couple of beaver albums yeah. and was he was in the bu- the bump band was he's in the band, bump right? band with yeah. uh yeah with uh scrappy judd newcomb yep. and rod stewart also married two texans and the and the massive hit on this is the same name as a, as a well-known bar down on Sixth Street. Maggie there you go. Mays. So that's yeah. not enough to Spell make you think but... that uh, we know what the hell we're talking about. I don't know what you need. <laughs> All right, guys, let's get to the point where we're going to rate this bad boy. Um, I'm going to start with you, JM, um, since this was Doug's album, and we do two ratings. One is with a critical eye, and one is how much or how how you would uh, rate it. For your personal reasons, scale of one to five. All right. So I'm going to go with the critics rating first because I think that there's really not much argument on that. It is a 4.8. I think I don't think that there's a credit in the world is going to say, all right, they're going to forgive the the that's all right. They're going to forgive the. Uh, Amazing Grace, all they that. They might not even have the same problem we do. With yeah, they, 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 they probably they wouldn't. As um, 
my personal rating, I'm going to give it like a 4.2. This album and Never a Dull Moment are frequently albums that I listen to. All right. I'm going to uh I'm going to do me next cuz I'll save uh the picker for last. Uh I do think it's an issue that a song with or an album with four songs on it that three of them are songs that really probably ought to be someplace else. I, it has eight songs on it. What I say? Four. I'm sorry, eight. That's right. Eight. Apologies. Well, it depends on how you count. Well, okay. So it could be nine songs, but regardless, at Thank least a third you, of them. Pedantic producer. At hey, least I'm a third of them are <laughs> songs that really should be someplace else. So that I think matters. Um, do, do the other songs elevate it above that to a certain extent? But I, I think a four point eight for me as a critic is a little high. Um, I would probably give it a four point two, critic wise. And then in terms of an album that I'd listen to. I hadn't listened to it in a while until we started doing this. And one of the things I forgot to talk about, I don't want to start a whole new conversation, but um, listening to it with this different set of, you know, whatever priorities, I really picked up on how good Ian McLagan's organ is mm-hmm. throughout this album. Yeah. And I never yeah. picked up on that before. And it really adds a depth to a lot of these songs yeah. that I, you know. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So I'm actually going to give it the same score. I'm going to give it a 4.2. Um, for both. Yeah. I'll just, you know, I know we don't, we don't encourage that, but I'll just press the old skippy button. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Doug. Well, I've always known I like this album going back and revisiting it intensely, uh, where you, where you listen. I, I, I guess we all do the same thing. We listen to it over and over and over and over and over again. And each time you try to find something else to say about a particular talk tune, yeah, um, it made me like the parts I like more, and it made me uh, <laughs> impatient with the parts that I'm not as excited <laughs> about more. So uh, I think, as a critic, I'm gonna do. Uh, I think I'm four point eight as a critic and as a uh, human being. Um, a regular person. Uh, Critics are not human beings, I think, is the underlying sentiment to that statement. Yes, they're they're the same category as uh, people on NPR. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm 4.8 on both. Uh, I think at one part in my life when I was better ignoring uh, those three tunes, I would have been almost at five. Yeah. But uh, despite the fact that that he and the band do those tunes perfectly, I I don't need to hear them. Um, yeah, they didn't need to be done. And uh, but if you don't have this record, uh, yeah, I'd do whatever people do now instead of buying albums. Just get this and and listen to it. Yeah, I think I think there's a tendency to to write Rod Stewart off. Um, yeah, there is, and, and it's a shame. But I do have these these arguments with people where you like what like. Passion, like I guess, passion was like a huge song in the in the eighties. Like I, I don't even he know had a that. A bunch song. of those hits, yeah. uh, that I forgot about. Like, love touch. Some guys got oh, which I think is a fine song, but like, love touch or something like that. Oh, I'm just going through looking through the the hits that Rod Stewart's had. Like, like no, oh he's continued God. to make music no, that he, sells. He, yeah, I, and I, he I, destroyed down 
Uptown Train. He destroyed uh, Forever Young. <laughs> Forever uh, Young. He did a good job with uh, my favorite song in the whole world. Uh, Warm Love. Wild, Wild Mountain Time. time. Uh, he just nails that. And I wish he would do... Uh, I wish you'd do a whole album of folk songs from It Ireland. would be good. And and I'm I'm not with y'all. I don't know if y'all were saying the American songbook was necessary. I think he said that, that was, not me. I don't I'm, think I'm it was necessary, but I that. do think that he introduced people to some very good songs. Well, maybe, but uh, not me. Um. <laughs> so, Tony. Yes, Jam. Normally at this time, uh, the host asks you, uh, to tell us what the kids are listening to right now, and we look for a recommendation. But since you're the host, I'm going to ask you, uh, what are the kids listening to now, and do you have a recommendation for us? I do have a recommendation for you. Uh, it is a, an album that was recorded in uh, 2019. Whoa! 2019, mm-hmm. so it's fairly recent, yep. by a Texas band, band hey. out of DFW area called the Vandaliers. Um, I don't believe I've spoken about them before, but the album is called Forever, and uh, the lead singer's definitely got a raspy voice. One of the things that sort of made me think it might be worth broaching on this particular episode, the music is is uh, alternative country as it gets, although there is a horn player too, which adds an element of fun to the songs. Yeah. Uh, they're high energy, great stuff. Uh, some standouts on it are troublemaker a song called 16 years uh miles and miles which is the lead off track really good stuff uh i i recommend listening to it uh give it a chance these guys are great they're still making great music um so yeah, forever by the Vandaliers. Well, thanks, Tony. Well, that's it for tonight's show. Next week, we'll be looking at an album by the band Badfinger. Their album, Wish You Were Here. You heard right. Their album, Wish You Were Here. host Doug Cooper, our co-host Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And reminding you, no matter how much you've stunk, keep that funk. But, I think it's really hard for people our age to understand what people Dylan's age 
thought Elvis, of Elvis. Of I Elvis agree with you. Or the Beatles. Yeah. And, well, you know, when I hear Elvis, I think, yeah, that guy can sing. No, I. F- and that's about it. Yeah. yeah. I put Buddy Holly miles above. Him. Oh, me too. Yeah, me too. But. These guys that grew up and saw well, on Ed Sullivan's show when yeah. they were 13, yeah. we can't understand it.